0: Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show on the Trump Trail, will Atlanta or New York be the first to light the fuse and indict the former president? The election crimes bulletin is back on the Trump stump from the Beltway to the Pacific Coast Highway. Also, coming up, uh, we'll be talking about a court decision. The court ruled last week, the Superior Court, uh, that proposed regulations uh, regarding uh, pesticides are not acceptable. So uh, it's uh, back to the drawing board. And there are folks who really never want those uh, chemicals to be near schools or uh, really anywhere on the planet. Uh, And uh, also we'll be uh, talking about the actions taken this weekend by Code Pink and about a million other organizations. Everybody's sort of getting troubled by that war, that war. When is there going to be peace? All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We are live today in San Francisco and Los Angeles. We come to you over the Pacifica Radio Network out of the San Francisco Bay Area radio station KPFA, the flagship station of the Pacifica Radio Network. Happy to have you along. And uh, once again, we're deeply engaged in uh, the Trump trail and defending the vote. So it's one more edition of the Election Crimes Bulletin.
1: This whole election is being rigged. The election is being rigged. It's totally rigged, yes, Donald. It's rigged because your cronies rigged it. So says Rolling Stone investigative reporter Greg Palast. You're removing black voters from the voter rolls just so you can win this election. <laughs> we will treat those people from January 6th fairly, and if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons. So you didn't call him, but you challenged his right to vote or have his ballot challenged. Sir, get out of my house. Okay, I will get, get out, out, of out of your my house. house. I just now.
2: It's now time for your Election Crimes Bulletin
0: with Greg Pallast. And this is Dennis Bernstein with Greg Pallast. You're listening to the Election Crimes Bulletin on Flashpoint Pacifica Radio. Uh, and, well, Greg, it seems like things are heating up. It seems like somebody might indict uh, Trump. Uh, people are betting it's either Georgia or uh, New York, interesting things coming out of that uh, special grand jury, uh, and we've got a lot to talk about. Quick, so let's start with uh, maybe we come in this way uh, into Georgia. Fair Fight versus True the Vote.
1: What is that battle? Well, what, what are we looking? Okay, for? well that's 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 actually quite important because that could affect the that could massively affect the twenty twenty four election. Fair Fight is the organization. Uh, the voting rights organization founded by Stacey Abrams. They sued True the Vote. Now, for those who, you know, been following my reports or saw my film Vigilante, these are the vigilantes. These are the, these are the, uh, this is the group that challenged back in uh, 2020, uh, challenged 364,000 Georgians uh, their right to vote. Now, uh, the judge ultimately ruled in their favor uh, at the, uh, well, not, not at that time, it didn't matter. But the important thing is that, is that this uh, case is now going, finally going to trial in federal court as a civil action to stop True the Vote from intimidating voters. And the form of intimidation that they use is principally chal- wildly challenging voters. They use a national change of address list. Uh, We went through, as you know, they challenged 364,000 voters. We literally, when I say we, the Palace Investigative Fund team literally called thousands, sent letters to tens of thousands. We couldn't find a single illegal voter voting from that list, not one. And, in fact, True the Vote could not name, which is this right-wing group, Which is backed by. Yeah,
0: say a little bit more about who they. Yeah, lay that out a little bit for people.
1: So, True the Vote is an organization which is uh, coming out of Texas, which has been mounting challenges all over the country, but they're principally focused to Georgia, one, because it's a swing state, and two, because Georgia law, unlike other states, says that any person can challenge an unlimited number of other voters. In this case, they challenged over a third of a million back in 2020. Now, um, uh, so this group, um, which is backed by the billionaire Bradley family of Wisconsin, and uh, Cleta Mitchell is uh, acts as, uh, as an attorney for them. She uh, you know, was um, called in. She's one of Trump's lawyers. She was on that infamous call with uh, with the Secretary of State of Georgia that's now subject to criminal charges. So she is basically, you can call her Trump's consigliere, or depending on your viewpoint, we'll see what the grand jury has to say. She may be an indicted co-conspirator in trying to overturn the elections in Georgia. So going after true the vote is very important because if these challenges continue, um, you know, Reverend Warnock only won by about a half percent of the vote, a very small amount. And if it weren't for these, uh, you know, and the, the reason is these massive challenges and also other attacks on voting and the voting rights law. So this will be going to trial, and this will have a big national effect because if these vigilante vote challenges uh, spread out of Georgia. It looks like about nine states at least have picked it up from Texas to Ohio, um, Iowa, Uh, Pennsylvania, these are swing states, Wisconsin, and uh, that could overturn the 2024 election if these, if there's an endorsement of this mass challenge of voters by, you know, non-government actors.
0: You're hearing there, Greg Pallaston, I'm Dennis Bernstein, this is the Election Crimes Bulletin on Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, We are live today in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and uh, well, all right. Uh, let's talk about uh, uh, that person w- who is sort of considered a hero in the mainstream corporate press. This is, uh, let's call this battle Fair Fight versus Purge. Isn't he the hero? Isn't he the one that turned back the clock on He's Trump, the that Trump by that the way? Totally and there, we right. should also mention there's another uh, phone call. But well, go on.
1: Yes. Uh, So, yeah. So Fair Fight also sued uh, Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state of Georgia. He's the guy who's considered a big hero. He's on 60 Minutes and MSNBC saying how he stood down Trump. But what they're forgetting is that it was Raffensperger with his uh, with the guy who appointed him, Governor Brian Kemp. When I say appointed, uh, you know, Raffensperger ran on his own uh, after uh, Kemp was secretary of state. Um, He was chosen by Kemp. That these two came up with this SB202 or Jim Crow 2.0, as it's called by the NAACP, a vicious attack on voting rights. And one of the things that there was a case, very important, the Raffensperger case, just like these vigilantes attacked the voter rolls, this is more dangerous because this is the state itself. And the state removed the state wrongly removed 340,000 voters, 340,000 voters are wrongly removed purge from the voter rolls, using the same cockamamie system used by True the Vote, which the judge says is nonsense, but in the case of the state, he said, well, if the state wants to do it, under the Supreme Court rulings, since the, basically the defenestration of the Voting Rights Act, the judge said they could do it. But he, he thought that an additional purge of voters in 2019, 22,000 voters, the judge said that was so off the wall he was going to reverse it. Now, that number is very important. 22,000 voters were put back on the voter rolls because of an action by Fair Fight. And I should mention that the Palace Investigative Fund experts advised on that case with Fair Fight. 22,000 votes were saved in 19 before the 20 election. Biden only won that state by 11,000 votes. If it wasn't for the Fair Fight action case, Biden would not have been elected. That simple. That brings us wow. to um but you know, on the other hand, uh with with the current Supreme Court we have, the judges are basically saying there's very little that they can do. But I would say something that the judge quote the judge, because Raffins, and Kemp are seen as great heroes standing up against the racist vote suppression tactics of Donald Trump. it's, it's all nonsense. The court ruled that, this is a quote, quote, Governor Kemp's campaign speech is evidence of racial appeals to voters, end quote, which is evidence of the base of violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. In other words, the judge ruled that Kemp's campaign statements were deliberately racist and meant to bend the election through racist appeals. Um,
0: you, you know, I, and that's, that's where your film is so poignant in the context of Kemp yeah. and his familia. Uh, so this ju- this ruling happens with uh, a governor who has a history, right? I mean, can you do the 30-second yes, version and that's of history? One of the things,
1: yes, well, one thing that, you know, uh, so again, we have to get away from Kemp the hero, the guy who um, stood up to Trump. Yes, there's internal battles within the Republican Party. Kemp wants to run for president. The Wall Street Journal has already endorsed him for president. Uh, what we, you know, effectively running several op saying he would be the best candidate, and he probably would be because he's gotten so much stroking from even outlets like MSNBC or the New York Times and 60 Minutes that he stood up to Trump. He's standing up to Trump from the right, not because he's trying to protect voters. He's first of all, he's trying to protect himself and stay out of prison. He sees what's happening to trump in other words if he had given in to trump they'd be breaking rocks on a chain game together and you know uh, kemp is too smart uh, for that uh but this does not it's important to understand that he's no hero he is absolutely the ringleader of these efforts to um you know to basically ethnically cleanse the voter rolls and his methods in georgia are being used nationwide that's very very important so i'm glad you brought that up that's and in his history and and also he's the guy who's a point man with Ron DeSantis of Florida against what they call critical race theory. What they really mean is let's not talk about history. And right. in the case of Kemp, because his family, uh, which uh, his family were the first, uh, was the first family to bring enslaved Africans to Georgia, and he doesn't want that taught in. Uh, and you can leave your job as a teacher if you keep that. I, I can't
0: imagine why he would be ashamed of that background. <laughs> well, you know, anyway,
1: we're speaking. Can... Go on, yeah, quick. Sorry.
0: quick. Yes, this is. Uh, All right. The, let, yes, let's yes, let's, move yes. let's move it along. Let's move it along. Okay. So you're listening to Flash, you're listening to uh, the Collection crimes bulletin on Flashpoints. Let's get to the grand jury in Atlanta. We've got the big mouth foreman Emily Coors, uh, who I find extremely interesting. Uh, so to bring us up to speed, how you see that case, and you think that's where the first indictment is going to come, or is New York going to beat them, beat her to the poll, uh, to oh, the? Oh, uh, uh, I would say if if anything's going to
1: happen. We'll get to New York, but I think they'll be moving faster because of the process. It's a very complex process in in Georgia. You, we had a grand jury directed by empaneled um, uh, paneled uh, at the request of, M, of um, Fannie Willis, the district attorney in Atlanta. Um, and so she was bringing... But she had a, the way that Georgia law works. She has to have a special grand jury investigate, make recommendations for an indictment. Then they have. To, then Willis has to decide. She said in May whether to ask for another grand jury, which would actually bring the indictments. I think that that's about hundred and two percent certain that she will look for a grand another grand jury to actually indict people. Now the question is, who will she indict? Two things. Uh, Emily Kors, who's the well, we, yeah, the big mouth war woman who didn't help anyone by going out in public and making TV appearances. But you know, welcome to uh, the uh, celebrity America. Right? That's what everyone wants. But she actually, and she could have jeopardized the case by saying too much about the evidence. It could have, but she didn't really. She just says a bunch of hints. She said, as to the big name, quote, she said, as to the big name, there's no shock there. Well, frankly, I can't, I don't know what that means. She did say, obviously, we know from the little bit, very little bit that's been released by the judge, that that they will be bringing, uh, that they recommended perjury charges. A lot of people have mentioned Giuliani, but we can assume that Giuliani did nothing but take the Fifth Amendment. So he would not have perjured himself because I'm sure he'd just taken the Fifth Amendment all day long. Um, but uh, so we don't know who they're citing for perjury or who may be um, you know, on the hook for that. The other is that um, they, they said that there'll be a whole bunch of people that they recommended indictment, and that suggests that – Uh, John Eastman's crowd. John Eastman was the attorney who told Trump, we can overturn the election using the 12th Amendment, and almost worked. But that meant that you had to have, choose electors, and they needed Mike Pence to choose a slate of electors from Georgia, which were in fact not elected because obviously Biden's electors were elected. And they had another problem, is that a lot of the Georgia Republicans who were trump delegates did not want to sign a petition saying that they had won because that's uh wire fraud perjury um possibly sedition <laughs> it breaks a lot of laws to say that you won. and, want and
0: this is where the what second phone call comes in right greg this is uh, where now
1: there's a second this... phone call so we had the phone call the infamous phone call to the secretary of state raffens perjury and again he's no hero, but he refused to accept, he would not go along with, with uh, Trump's demand to, quote, find 11,000 votes. Uh, but there's now a new tape, a tape with David Ralston. Uh, now, Ralston was the, uh, was the Georgia House speaker. Now, he passed away recently. Uh, he's, no, he's a very conservative, very right-wing character, really beholden to Brian Kemp, and Trump called him. There's a tape of it. We haven't heard the tape. We don't know what's on the tape, except apparently he's, uh, he's told Ralston to demand a um, you know from the secondary notes that Ralston made to others that Trump had demanded that he call a special session of the Georgia legislature to overturn uh, to overturn the uh, certification of biden's victory in georgia and ralston <laughs> ralston also again he's a very conservative guy he is uh, he's you know shepherded through terribly racist laws there's no other way to put it but he you know he does again he doesn't want to break rocks on a chain gang and uh and also you know as he pointed out you know kemp wouldn't go along with this so he wasn't going to call an extra session of the, of the house he said there's just no literally no authority in georgia law So he basically ducked out. The question is, was the call, because we don't have the tape yet, was the call from Trump a direct – did Trump really know? And this is one of the problems that any prosecutor is going to have in trying to indict Trump. What was Trump's state of mind? What was his intent? If he really believed Eastman's plan um, that it could work, that he was in fact – if he believed that he was cheated – and he believed that that Eastman's plan would work. It's not clear to me how you get an indictment or how you get a conviction out of that. But we'll see. We don't have all the evidence. Um, then uh, we go. We run off to New York. Alvin Bragg, who's the Manhattan DA, um, is almost certainly that's. I think he's going to win the. Uh, <laughs> he's going to win the speed contest to, for first indictments. Um, he is. Um, He's been speaking with Michael Cohn, who was convicted of making – of paying off the uh, Stormy Daniels, the, uh, the uh, porn star who uh, banged Mr. Trump, um, and paying her off for her silence. He went to prison for that, and he's right. not too happy about that. And so he says, look, I went to prison for this, but I did it for Donald Trump. Why isn't he in the can? So he's been pressing Bragg. To say, if I was convicted of this crime, then certainly the guy did it for, with his full knowledge making the payments, should also go to prison. And uh, so I expect Bragg will uh, bring an indictment uh, on Trump for that. Part of that is, by the way, because people are upset that Bragg canned a case brought by his predecessor, Cyrus Vance, who was about to bring an indictment against Trump for... Uh, um, basically uh, wire and bank fraud for falsifying documents in New York to the banks and insurers. Your yeah, real and, charges. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's serious stuff. But now we get to another case. Because, so Bragg had dropped that case to a lot of disagreement. The two prosecutors that, that uh, were working on the case for you know for years resigned in protest, uh, they said this. We have one of them case. wrote a book, right? And
0: attacked him in public.
1: Yeah. yeah, and attacked Bragg. So, Bragg, that's why I think, very frankly, I think that's why Bragg suddenly turned around and said, because remember, he has to get elected to the uh, DA's position. So, that's why I think he turned around and picked up the Stormy Daniels case, which has been, you know, I know that Michael Cohen has been banging on his door, literally, literally banging on his door for um, two years. Uh, so I think he decided to pick up that case because of the political heat. But then we get Letitia James. She's the New York attorney general who um, Trump calls a racist. Could it be because she's black? Um, <laughs> and, uh, I'm just guessing. I mean, I don't know. I can't reach into Agent Orange's mind, but uh, he called her um, uh, a racist. Um, he also called Bragg a racist. He's African-American as well. Um, Letitia Brown has picked up the case about the faked finance documents. Now, she, because of her, it's hard. She can't bring that that uh, criminal action. She has to bring a civil action. That means no jail time. But she is asking that Donald Trump, Donnie Jr., Ivanka, and uh, I'm not sure if she, I have to look up whether she included Jared in that, but but uh, she's saying she basically wants to kick them out of New York, that they can't do business in New York, which is, of course, where they're. Uh, where their operations right. are based, so literally the trumps the whole trump uh, you know criminal family gang would be barred from uh, New York.
0: Well listen we're and, we're just about out of time, but I have to say okay. first of all, um uh, the the uh, the uh, Alvin Bragg thing sort of reminds me of like a good figure skating routine, you know sort of starts off your skating forward. Uh, and then you're skating backwards in a different direction, and I'm not—I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, but I—I—I'm I, I, gonna let me say it this way: You know, you, you know when somebody starts off a discussion with this. Anybody who knows anything about anything knows this. So I don't usually say that, but I'm gonna say it now. I want to get your reaction. Anybody who knows anything about anything knows the longer you wait to do a prosecution and the closer it gets to an election, the more difficult, the more complicated, the more ways that the people you want to prosecute can uh, sort of jump out. Don't you think the attorney general of the United States screwed up big time? Well,
1: the question is... Is he a coward?
0: Am I I overstating? I mean, seriously. This is a long time with all those charges.
1: I do know that he did, uh, and there are two other cases, by the way. Uh, Garland Merrick did uh, did, uh, bring in a special prosecutor to look at whether Trump deliberately stiffed the National Archives in um, hiding the fact that he had taken confidential documents, which, by the way, still can't be found, which could be a violation of the Espionage Act. That's no small right. thing. So, uh, but, you know, again, waiting, it, it, there is a problem, because there is a, a, a Department of um, Justice memo which says you cannot indict, you should not indict someone running for president. And I think that, you know, that it should be avoided at all costs. I think that's one of the reasons why Trump, now I'm speculating, i got to be careful here, but why Trump announced very early is by saying, by officially making himself a candidate, right. it's legally more difficult to indict him because the courts reasonably want to avoid affecting an election. But I look at it this way shouldn't people know about any criminal activity by a candidate? That's what we have courts for, to determine those things. And of course, there's yes. a January 6 hearing review, which could ultimately still bring in Donald Trump for failing to, uh, in his fiduciary, in his. Um, executive authority, you know, that's Pence's, Pence is actually kind of lobbying for it, that uh, Trump failed to act. It was malfeasance to the point of criminality on January 6th.
0: All right. Well, that's Greg Pallas This is the Election Crimes Bulletin. Greg, uh, in the near future, you and I are going to have to get together on the air for a poetry reading. What do you think?
1: I think we can do that if you're up to that. (laughs) That doesn't even rhyme. (laughs) I better work on yeah. my poetry
0: before we do that. <laughs> you got to get to work on that. Okay, let's do All it. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there uh, for now. Uh, that's Greg Powell. Again, the Election Crimes Bulletin. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Thanks, Greg. We'll be back in a moment. Hey. Welcome to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We come to you every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. We turn our attention back to a subject we've been following for some time very serious subject. It has to do with pesticides uh, and the implications for using them uh, around farm workers, around where farm workers live, around where there are schools. Uh, And uh, actually, uh, the Superior Court ruled last week uh, that a proposed regulation regarding these these deadly chemicals The uh, proposed regulation fails to protect farm workers who labor near fumigated fields from harmful, harmful levels of exposure to various uh, cancer causing pesticides. Joining us to talk about it is Mark Weller. Mark Weller works with the Californians for Pesticide Reform. Mark Weller, welcome back to Flashpoints. Good to have you with us.
2: Thank you, Dennis. Always an honor and an hour to follow Greg Palace, too. Thank you.
0: All right, well good to have you with us, but this is this is actually a little bit of good news in the middle of an absolutely terrible story. Could you give us a little context for this battle in terms of pesticides and sort of how we got to this moment?
2: Yes. So this again, this is a case of one pesticide which really kind of tells us about how broken our pesticide regulatory system is. Uh, There are 133 pesticides that are banned or not allowed in the European Union that are currently used in California. And one such example is the fumigant pesticide 1,3-dichloropropine. It's also known as 1,3-D. And it is most often encountered with a brand name Tilo. It's a pre-plant soil sterilizer used on a wide range of crops, notably almonds in central california and strawberries on the central coast of california where i am now um one 3d is the third most used pesticide in all of california it, it annually exceeds 12 million pounds and it's a cancer threat to farm worker communities it's a prop 65 listed cancer causing chemical it's a toxic air contaminant so this state recognizes it as a, a real problem um it as i said uh, well I- Did I say it's banned in 34 countries, (laughs) but not in the United States. It was disallowed in California between 1990 and 1995 um, after a high air concentration uh, was found in Central Valley. And it can drift for miles at harmful levels. One of the highest levels in the air ever recorded was at an elementary school in Shafter in Kern County in 2020. And the state itself says it likely came from an application more than seven miles away. So it and the use of 13D is concentrated in Latino population. So this is the pesticide that was before the court. And what the court said was that the state um wrote an illegal regulation. And the reason it was illegal was because it didn't protect farm workers. <laughs>
0: um, and uh, so we had. How, the, how do you write a regulation that doesn't place. it? Yeah. How do you write yeah. a regulation that doesn't <laughs> affect the ones who are most impacted? The, 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 help me understand that. I don't get that.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. But I mean, the reason the court found for us is because you can't. Um, and DPR uh, through again. I'm not an attorney, and it will not make for good radio to get into the, the weird okay. um, pretzel log- logic that the state used. But in the end, the state, uh, the, the judge said, "This is no, you can't do that." Um, they tried to make uh, a regulation that did not include farm workers, so they could use uh, a more lenient regulation. And then they said, they'll do farm workers later, is basically what they tried to do. And the judge said, no, you can't do that. I
0: can't do that. Talk a little bit more, but I, I, I know mm-hmm. that you're not a lawyer and uh, you're not a doctor, but talk a little bit more. Have there been any incidents where children or their teachers have been impacted? Uh, have there been any mass accidents? What What do we know about this chemistry and in the context of a whole bunch of chemicals that are used where are we now in this yeah
2: so you know 1-3-d is a fumigant which is a kind of pesticide that's used usually before everything is planted to sterilize the soil and um, they're all highly toxic almost all if not all are carcinogens and you know they're banned in countries like Norway and the top ones used in the United States and California are banned in the European Union. So this stuff is awful. It causes, co- you know, we know it causes cancer. Um the level at which it causes cancer is somewhat disputed, but I want to talk about that in a minute. And the European Union um has never approved 13D because it, you know their main reason was because they found it caused genetic damage. So, and then it, it also, it, you know, much research has shown that it damages lungs and can cause asthma uh, and increased visits to the um, emergency room for, for asthma attacks. So uh, that's that's the stuff that, you know, we're dealing with. And it's, it's the stuff that uh, it, it, if, if we don't put an end to them, um, uh, we will continue to haunt the the lives of farm workers in california and in the united states and so this fight is going to be a very important one because we hope it sets a standard for judging other pesticides right now there are two divisions within cal epa that uh give safe levels for pesticides one is the office of environmental health hazard Assessment. They are the uh, division in Cal EPA that handles Prop 65 cancer and reproductive damage chemicals. So they announced in June, this past June, the level at which 1-3-D is unsafe. Anything above 0.04 parts per billion in the air. Very tiny amounts, right? And um, so one would think in a rational system that a sister division within Cal EPA would say, oh, okay, so we will use that when we're making our regulation for 1-3-D. But instead, the Department of Pesticide Regulation completely ignored OEHA, didn't even reference it in their draft regulation. And so they are proposing levels of 1-3-D in the air 14 times higher where it's applied in farm communities. So we've got It's kind of like a Plessy versus Ferguson thing, Dennis. It's like two sets of sciences uh, for two different groups of people, one for most Californians that Oeha sets, and then another 14 times weaker that DPR sets for farm workers.
0: You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. I'm just remembering uh, I spent uh, 10 years as a teacher uh, in very poor neighborhoods around uh, New York City, and I saw the impacts of lead poisoning and chemistry on kids' ability to learn or uh, destroyed, essentially – their ability to think or to focus based on the chemistry. And I, yeah. I suspect that the, the, the kids of farm workers are having the same problems that this has come up.
2: Yeah, they absolutely are. And uh, the category of pesticides that are doing the most harm to kids' brains are organophosphates. Um, uh, the fumigants that we're talking about, the scientists have linked mostly to cancer and lung damage and then also genetic damage, which can also lead to, you know, uh, brain problems and learning problems and things like that. But, you know, asthma is one of the major complaints of teachers who work in farm worker communities that their, their children have just enormous proportions of, of asthma that they didn't see. You know, many teachers like teach in one part of the state and then they move to another and we've, we've seen time and time again a teacher saying, you know, when I used to be in L.A., where the, you think of, you know, L.A. is having really bad air, um, yeah. and then they move to, you know, Tulare County or Monterey County, and they say, you know, it's just so much worse here with with, with my children. And part of that's got to be um, the pesticides that are applied near the near the schools, and schools in California are often near fields, and. Um, and you know, teachers are reporting these issues. And in fact, the state has pesticide air monitors, but only six of them in the entire state. And at every six. single one, the air concentration of one 3D is above what the Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment says is safe. And several of these are at schools. Um, the one in, well, right a few miles from where I live, um, at Ohlone Elementary School. Um, uh, there's a teacher there named Melissa Dennis, teaches second grade. They're surrounded by fields. They have a pesticide air monitor. The air monitor reads that they've had two and a half times more 1-3D in the air than Oweha says is safe. And DPR was calling for a regulation that allowed for 14 times more than OEHHA says is safe. And so Melissa said, DPR is telling us that my students are worth fourteen times less, and um, that's that's plus UV first. I mean, that's that's the that's the garbage that we get from the state of California right now.
0: All right, let's talk. Where where are the politicians on this? Is Gavin Newsom are the are the Democrats way better than the Republicans? Is uh, are, are these politicians owned? by the industry, by these huge uh, chemical corporations. Ha- ha- who uh, calls the shots?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, we have a somewhat new set now, uh, Dennis, so we're always sort of hopeful. Um, but historically, the the party label didn't matter much when it came to pesticides. Most of our pesticides bill have died in the ag committees. Um, in fact, the last... Significant pesticide law, I can remember, was 2001, um, which allowed for making buffer zones around schools. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, we usually have to pressure the State Department of Pesticide Regulation to get the changes that we need because the legislatures, you know, they get a lot of money from Big Ag.
0: They get a lot of money. And the governor, who has his own vineyards and all that?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we get good things and bad things from the governor. We got—I mean, he was a main force behind canceling one of the brain-harming pesticides, chlorpyrifos, a couple of years ago. That was huge. I mean, it was a bold step, and we were very pleased with that. Unfortunately, the last bill—this is why I say they usually die in legislation, There was actually a bill that got through the legislature that wanted to restrict the use of neonicotinoid pesticides, which are harming our uh, bees and uh, pollinators, and uh, when it got to the desk of Newsom, he said, "You know, this is really an issue for the Department of Pesticide Regulation to deal with, not me." And he didn't sign it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah. So we're we're not we're not sure, but we we get some things and not others <laughs> with, with this government.
0: And, and again, it is industry money a big problem? It, just to be clear about that, are they calling the shots as they have? Yeah, go on, please.
2: Yeah, with Department of Pesticide Regulation, there are kind of two forces on them from corporations. One is this, this direct back and forth. I mean, we know from investigative journalists that Department of Regulation and Dow Chemical have, having back, have had back and forth for years. In fact, we see plans that, that uh, Dow gives DPR in 2008— that finally become policy in 2016, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, Dow has a huge what this chumminess with DPR that is very concerning, and you know, Dow's not the only company. The last head of DPR now works for Syngenta, one of the four giant pesticide companies in the world. Um, and so, you know, there's revolving door stuff too. But the other the other pressure on well, pressure the other influence from corporations on Dow. Is I'm seeing on DPR on the Department of Pesticide Regulation is the fact that they get eighty percent of their budget from pesticide sales, something called a mill fee, which is essentially a tax on the first sale of pesticides. So oh. their interest, their self interest, where they're supposed to regulate pesticides, but if they regulate them to oblivion, they'll have no money. And since one three D is the third most used pesticide in all the state. I think that that had something to do with the fact that they did not want to reduce the use of 1-3-D because that would reduce their money.
0: Oh, that's a good point. Um, before we let you go, could you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the role that the farm workers uh, have played yeah. in this battle? And obviously they're yeah. uh, among the most impacted. So what is yeah. their role? What have they been doing? Are they in yeah. support of this uh, movement? absolutely no they've been the center of it so you know the farm worker
2: farm workers have been pushing for pesticide reform for more than 60 years now they've always been at the forefront of this and um at the only public hearing that the state held for this one 3d regulation the draft regulation was back in january 18th and i know you talked to one of my colleagues then um and the room was filled with farm workers one after another coming up to the mic and saying We're not worth 14 times less, um, which is basically telling them, like, you need to use the real safe level, not the one that Dow picks for you. Um, And uh, their 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 push has been tremendous. And, um, you know, we meet our organizations meet with farm workers constantly. And, um, you know, we're having another meeting next week in uh, Watsonville, where, where, where I am right now. Um, and uh, they drive the public comments. Um, they are in on the planning. Um, and, uh, you know, they have the bodies uh, to show the damage. And we're just
0: trying to get the state to listen. Well let me ask the big stupid question before we say goodbye um yeah. do we do, do they really need all this chemistry is there another vision for growing food more safely so protecting the growers and the farm workers and the children is, is this Absolutely. just simply an addiction it's it's
2: it's an addiction and it's um I mean everything we grow in California we also grow organically So when they throw up their hands and they say if you get rid of 13d what are we going to do? well <laughs> at least 34 countries in the world have figured it out um, it's everything's grown organically as well I mean it, it, we're just so tired of that excuse and you know we, we keep hearing that question well you know what are we going to use instead And you know, for for us, it's like, that's not the question. The question is, you know, how are we going to protect our farm? How are we going to protect our farm working communities? That's the number one question. And the way to do that is to stop using this stuff. And there are plenty of examples of other things that, 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 that you can do throughout the world. And often it's the farm right next door. They figured it out.
0: Hmm. <sighs> Well, we're going to leave it right there, but we really appreciate the very good information, Mark Weller. You're with Californians for Pesticide Reform. How do people get more information? Maybe they want to follow what you do, be at the next court hearing, whatever.
2: Yeah, easiest way is to visit our uh, website or Facebook page. That's Pesticide
0: pesticidereform.org. Beautiful. Thanks for spending the time with us. Always a pleasure, Dennis. Thank you. All right. Be safe. And you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We call it Flashpoints. We're live today in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And uh, we're always happy to have you all along with us wherever you are listening uh, in this troubled but beautiful country. Uh, We're going to take a short break when we come back. We're going to be talking about some activities, you might say, some folks who were not pleased with the uh, U.S. war effort and the incredible dangers that are now being presented in terms of the potential for either a nuclear meltdown at a power plant or a nuclear war. These are very dangerous times. We'll take a nice two-minute break. Mike will dig up some wonderful music, and then we'll be back. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We are delighted to welcome back to these airwaves, Cynthia Papermaster. She is San Francisco Code Pink, and she is always out there or in there fighting against wars, fighting for human rights with the wonderful... Wonderful code pink. Welcome back, Cynthia, to Flashpoints. Good to have you with us. There's gonna be protests all over the country, all over the world, uh, and all over the streets of uh, San Francisco. What is going on this weekend? You know, some people who listen to this show think that the United States is engaged with the humanitarians with the Ukrainians in a very humanitarian operation to fight against putin's invasion you don't
3: yeah oh thank you uh thanks for having me on dennis um yeah tomorrow's the 20th anniversary of the u.s invasion of iraq and just like that uh horrible military adventure uh we're at it again this time in europe with um with our Funding of a proxy war with Russia using Ukraine as the proxy. Um, so we're not celebrating the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. We are saying enough. <laughs> enough funding for war, $100 billion in arms shipments to Ukraine. We want to end NATO. We want to stop the permanent war economy that funnels trillions of dollars away from jobs, education, healthcare, student debt clean energy, all the things we actually need in this country. We want negotiations now. We don't want a nuclear war. We don't want a conventional war with uh, Russia and we say no war with China. China is not our enemy. So those are our main demands for tomorrow and we're gathering at 24th and Mission at noon, uh, 24th and Mission for a rally, an opening rally. I'll be speaking with my Code Pink sisters all lined up in pink (laughs) and then we're going to go on a march and we'll march around the mission and return to that spot.
0: And there are going to be protests happening all over the country, all over the world, right? So San Francisco is just part of um, what people are hoping is uh, the rebirth of uh, a new anti-war movement, wouldn't you say?
3: That's right. That's right. There's a huge gathering in Washington, D.C. Over 200 organizations have endorsed uh, the action tomorrow. Um, we also have a lot of organizations here in the Bay Area that have endorsed and are coming out. The Washington D.C. rally has Noam Chomsky and a, no- and a number of, of wonderful speakers, wow. including Medea Benjamin from Code Pink. Um, so I don't know whether people can tune into that rally. I wish I did, um, but I'm. Oh, it'll really be it'll be
0: broadcast. Let me let me tell you, it will be broadcast on uh, Consortium News uh okay. consortium news the the news website they will broadcast it live
3: okay from, from and it is DC. a revival we we haven't gone anywhere all of us folks around the country and i think that's the majority of people in this country actually oppose more funding for the war in ukraine uh, i think the latest ap poll was something like 48 percent. that may be that's close to half <laughs> of the people in this country don't want more funding for the war in ukraine and they want the war or the conflict i should call it to to end with negotiations ceasefire negotiations and so um we're you know we're in that stream of life (laughs) or just saying this is enough we we can't risk nuclear war we can't risk a conventional war um and our state department of course uh, well the voice of the state department i'm thinking is victoria newland and we want to get her fired that's the code pink campaign let's fire victoria newland the under Secretary of state who is a cold warrior always pushing for uh defeating russia and, and next we'll have a war with china if we're not um on the alert so come out everyone <laughs> come out tomorrow to the mission district and and join us
0: and your thoughts are, there's a lot of discussion about the role that nancy pelosi has played in the war or to try and you know, restrain Donald Trump. Um, where do you, where does Pelosi uh, figure in this for you? Do you find her as a, a warrior or is she somebody who's helped to mitigate the problem?
3: Thank you for that question. Um, yeah, Nancy Pelosi never met a war or a war budget that she didn't like or sign on to. She has funded, as Speaker of the House, she had a choice of bringing war funding uh, legislation to the floor of the house to vote or not and she always allowed those votes to come up and she always had the uh, support of the democratic party to vote for the pentagon budget or even more than what the pentagon budget was asked, was uh, requesting and biden has just carried that on but i think of pelosi as the financier of the war effort for the last 20 years uh including in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, and now you know, Ukraine and NATO. We're, we're <laughs> But we are closer to nuclear war than we've ever been. And I think Pelosi, um, I can't understand, I honestly cannot understand why she doesn't see the inhumanity of our foreign policy and why we're not cooperating with other countries to fight the climate crisis, um, poverty, uh, all of the ills of this world. We... <laughs> We really should put, be putting our efforts into that. And for the last 20 years after we illegally occupied and attacked Iraq, which is shameful. I mean, we haven't even gotten over the shame of that. Um, no, she uh, needs to do some reflection. I don't know if there's any way to, for her to redeem herself.
0: That was a, a brutal war that the United States conducted against Iraq, and part of the because I saw documents. I worked with Sandy Close on investigating the lead-up to the war and the way in which the United States was taking every action possible to get into the war. Uh, And um, the the, the United States government was hell-bent on going forward. There were all kinds of... Uh, things in the secret Pentagon document, I remember reading about how they this was going to be the first war where their their fully you know uh, depleted ura- depleted uranium was going to become a key forward fighting part of the u s military and really? this depleted uranium made hundreds of thousands of veterans sick, and they knew. When I read in the documents that we got, they show that you know they they need to take steps too because the soldiers tend to pick up souvenirs and want to bring home souvenirs, and with this new stuff and the depleted, we have to be very careful about that. And everybody. It was like, you know, 7 out of 10 vets who came back were sick. We heard all kinds of uh, Gulf War syndrome, this, that. And oftentimes uh, the vets were told that they were imagining it. So there was a brutal side of it, not to mention the fact that the United States bombed out the Iraq infrastructure on purpose. That's a war crime. Anyway, I'm going yeah. on here. But that, that, it's a brutal war we're remembering. Yeah.
3: Yeah yeah it all comes back to us now when we think about the Iraq war um and and the torture that occurred during that time u s torture policy, which is something I'm really really interested in still um so in every every way you look at it, the Iraq war was evil, it was wrong <laughs> it was illegal and um I don't think we've made reparations enough. I don't think we've redeemed ourselves i mean we the shame of it is just too much it's too much. <laughs> Sorry
0: I amazing uh, yeah, but we're 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 still doing it, you're still doing it. code pink uh evolved out of that kind of brutality, and uh, i I still right. remember I can't remember which war it was where I was talking to Medea in Iraq. It was probably more than one war, uh, mm-hmm. and more than one well,
3: occupied this is our 20th... countries yeah yeah, this Go is on. our twentieth anniversary for code pink uh this year as well and uh yeah we've been doing this for 20 years and it it seems like we're going backwards in some ways we used to be uh out there doing the can-can and dressed in pink tutus and and all of that you know we had some hope uh obama got elected that didn't work out for for ending war just the opposite so here we are today um and i i don't mean to be a downer here uh, but we really have to come out we have to speak up we have to stand up and there are so many more of us than there are of them. And when I say them, I'm talking about the the war billionaires, the people who are profiting off of this horrible misery that we're causing around the world. So tomorrow, you know, you know, don't don't stay silent now. Let's really and, make a noise and, tomorrow.
0: And I wanna say I wanna thank you for all the great work you do, Cynthia. I wanna say we're gonna go out with uh, a, a song I wrote, but it's not just a song. I wrote a, a piece with Francisco Herrera, and we've adapted it to the collateral murder um, document that that really helped to stop that Iraq war 20 years ago. That's why they want to kill Julian Assange, because he offered information uh, that showed the brutality of the U.S. involvement uh, in the war. So... Um, People are meeting where and when? What What are you urging people to do?
3: Noon at 24th and Mission at the BART Plaza at 24th and Mission. There'll be a brief rally, and then we'll have a march around the Mission, returning to the Mission District. And if you're with Code Pink, you'll be invited to an after-party, a gathering Uh, So we're going to do some beautiful trouble.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's going to be my uh, coming out of hibernation party. Anyway, we're going to leave it right there. You're listening to the wonderful uh, Cynthia Papermaster. She's talking about um, national, local, international anti-war actions. People are afraid of what's going on. And uh, we're going to go out with our anthem to Julian Assange. Thank you
3: again.
0: You're welcome.
2: I saw that we could achieve a lot of reform with a little bit of work. In some cases, one classified video can possibly stop a war.
0: A military
1: chopper opens fire Instruments of genocide WikiLeaks unmask the command. Gunsight video nails the murder scene down. Julian told the truth about the war machine. It's getting late in the hour. Don't wait another minute.